Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You'll probably recognise this rather famous 18th century children's sleep prayer and no, I'm not going to suddenly segue into Metallica's Enter Sandman, but it just shows how much sleep has moved into popular culture. But what weird folklore exists around sleep itself? Find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. We are in our final episode of August and it is going to be the final episode of our Health and Medicine Month. So this week we are looking at sleep folklore because I don't know about you, but I always feel like sleep is the thing where when I can't sleep, it immediately shows me that something is wrong and it's kind of like an early warning indicator that I need to attend to something else. So as it is such an intrinsic part of human functioning, it did seem a good idea to have a look at the folklore of sleep. And let's be honest, it is quite mysterious as well. I mean, does anybody really know what's going on while we're actually asleep? We do have a vague notion that the body's carrying out repairs during the sleep process. But let's be honest, who actually knows what any of the dreams are about? Now, I will point out with this episode, I had originally thought that I might wander into the territory of the dream and the nightmare. But quite frankly, they're a massive subject all on their own. So if you'd like us to do an episode at some point on dreams and nightmares obviously please do let me know but I won't be dealing with them in this episode because quite frankly there's enough just about sleep to have a look at without going into the realms of dreams as well. So we are going to have a look at sleep folklore and that's going to include things like how did people protect themselves during sleep, how did they ensure that they got enough sleep and even what would they do when they wanted to stop someone else from sleeping. So that is what we're going to get into in this week's episode. I don't wish to panic anyone, but you really are at your most vulnerable while you're asleep. You'd probably already figured that one out yourself. And in contemporary times, there's a whole range of things that we're probably likely to be worried about, but it'll be things like break-ins and things like that. Yet in earlier times, people feared nocturnal attacks by demons. And the specific demons involved were the incubi and the succubi, and that's obviously the plural terms of each of them. An incubus was a male demon that forced sexual activity with a woman, while a succubus was the female counterpart attacking men. And the symptoms of these sorts of attacks really do sound a lot like sleep paralysis, where the mind wakes up before the body and then it leads to this awful experience in which the sufferer feels they're being crushed or just simply can't move and they've literally been pinned in place. Now, strangely, some medieval medical sources actually dismissed these episodes as demonic attacks. They actually thought that attacks were more likely caused by indigestion or drunkenness, and they almost didn't really want to engage with the idea of them as being demonic at all. They very much went for a physical cause or, in some cases, as a psychological cause. So... We often think of the medieval medicine as being a little bit backwards, but as we discovered with the Elfshot episode a couple of weeks ago, some of it was actually quite advanced for the time. And I think in this case, they were trying to decide if it was a respiratory disease 
or some kind of brain issue. And the fact that they were looking for an actual physical cause, I think, is actually quite impressive. Now, to be fair, they're also not necessarily right by thinking it was caused solely by indigestion or drunkenness. But let's be honest, they're in a better ballpark than sex demon. Now, William F. MacLehose relates the story of Stephen of Hoyland, who was a 12th century knight who actually believed he'd been suffering from nightly attacks for 30 years. And he tried all these different remedies, but nothing but praying to Thomas Beckett actually worked to overcome the affliction. And this then lends credence to the idea of it being demonic rather than physical. Now, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of England, even Merlin was the result of an incubus visit to his mother, Although, let's be honest, Geoffrey of Monmouth claimed quite a lot of things that weren't exactly true. But if we're going to ignore the medical opinion that they're not actually real, how would you guard against these creatures if you went with the folklore? Well, there was one belief that iron bracelets would protect you from demons in your sleep, and this in itself reflects the wider belief that iron would ward off evil. And it also explains why parents would hang iron implements above their child's cradle to deter fairies from stealing them slightly gentler option is put forward by the late Eric W. Edwards and he relates a remedy mostly aimed at girls and it was for girls who didn't want to lose their virtue to an incubus and they were directed to use herbal concoctions that would include the likes of St John's wort, vervain and dill. Now the latter two were believed to deter witches so it believes people thought they might also deter an incubus as well and given the modern use of St John's wort as a herbal antidepressant I do have to wonder if that's kind of actually the more powerful of the three. Incidentally, dill often appears in things like gripe water to help settle stomachs, so it's entirely possible that it could have also had the indigestion element in there as well. I'm not entirely sure how you use the three herbs, that part wasn't covered, but they are the three that are associated with deterring sex demons. But it wasn't just your physical body that you had to worry about while you were sleeping, your soul was also in peril. Many people actually believed that cats would steal a baby's breath while it slept and a jury in Plymouth even found a cat guilty of infanticide in 1791. Now there is a belief that cats would steal souls on the behalf of the devil so given the renaissance belief that the soul attached to the body at the lips people perhaps thought that the cat was stealing the soul while the body slept. So you do get some people really panicking about having cats anywhere near cradles and so on. And it wasn't just your baby's soul that was also in peril, it was your own. So you should cover any mirrors in your bedroom before bed because this would stop your soul then becoming trapped in them while you slept. And obviously because we are looking at protection here, it's not just what you wear for bed or what you do to your mirrors that can protect you during sleep. And Jacqueline Simpson and Steve Rowd note that you shouldn't sleep with the foot of the bed facing the door. And that's because coffins were carried out of the house feet first, so sleeping in the same direction was thought to be tempting fate. And speaking of beds, you should actually align your bed with the directions that your floorboards go in. Because if you put your bed across them, that would stop you from sleeping. So essentially that's basically you don't want the bed being at 90 degrees to the direction your floorboards go in. And not only did you need protection while you were asleep, you should also be careful where you sleep. Niall McCoytier even notes a Welsh belief that children who fell asleep near henbane would never wake up again. Now this could be because henbane is actually toxic, but it could also be due to some of his other associations. And John Gerard's Herbal actually points out that there was a belief that if you washed your feet in a decoction of henbane, it could cause sleep, as could smelling the flowers. 
Wherever possible, try to avoid falling asleep under a hawthorn tree. Thomas the Rhymer did so and ended up working for the Queen of Fairy for seven years as a result. And hawthorn trees are widely held to be fairy trees, so they then become a liminal space between the worlds. And if you're then asleep underneath one, you sort of leave yourself open to anything that might be crossing back and forward between the two. It also wasn't advisable to fall asleep anywhere outside in Iowa and people believe that dragonflies might sew together your fingers or toes and obviously we have covered dragonflies before in an earlier episode. Even sleeping in a bed poses its own problems because the unwary might get up on the wrong side of the bed and you'll have heard that phrase before about that essentially meaning that you're in a bad mood that you got up on the wrong side of the bed. But what does that even mean? Well, some people think that it comes from the old belief that it was bad luck to put your left foot on the floor first when you were getting up. So if you got up on the left-hand side of the bed, then obviously you'd be putting your left foot down first because that's the leg that you swing out of bed first. Whereas if you're sleeping on the right-hand side of the bed, you'd swing your right foot out first. Though it doesn't really say an awful lot about people whose bed is up against a wall on that particular side. Now, we do need to remember that patterns of sleep were very different in earlier times. And historian Roger E. Kirch actually theorised that prior to the Industrial Revolution, people slept in two instalments. And that's kind of unsurprising, considering heating and lighting were both quite scarce. So spending time in bed was a good way to pass these cold winter nights. But that said, given the British night actually lasts 14 hours during the winter, we just simply don't need to sleep for that long which is why we would have a first sleep and a second sleep with a break in the middle, which completely knackers all of those people who go, ooh, it's three sleeps to Christmas. Well, if you've got more than one sleep per evening, that really does explain why sleep is not an adequate unit of time. But I digress. People would get up and do chores during the break. They might have some kind of leisure time because it might be the only time they got to do anything for leisure and so on in this break between sleeps. And with the development of artificial light, obviously people could then move away from this two sleep model and we started moving towards this idea of needing between six and eight hours of sleep a night. But what would you do if you couldn't actually get to sleep in the first place? Well, the hand of glory is a bit of a drastic measure, but according to the folklore, thieves would turn the fingers of a dead man's hand into candles. And when all of these candles were lit, all the occupants of the house that was about to be burgled would fall asleep and they wouldn't be able to be roused until the flames were extinguished. And in one tale, only milk can put them out. Now, that's quite a quite an extreme way of making sure that you get a good night's sleep. So instead, you could actually encourage good sleeping dreams by what you put under your pillow. David Ian McKendry actually relates the belief that a woman would put her slice of wedding cake under her pillow before she went to sleep. And this would then mean that she'd have a good night's sleep, but she would also find the husband of her dreams while she was asleep. And Terry Windling also explains that people might put wild poppy seeds under their pillow to see the face of their intended. And the use of poppy is quite important because poppies are so associated with sleep and dreams due to the soporific qualities of opium. Now, the Greek god of dreams, Morpheus, gives his name to the painkiller morphine derived from opium. I think nowadays we're probably more likely to associate poppies with death and remembrance although these links actually date back to the Battle of Waterloo, not the First World War. Now, according to Badwitch, a folk remedy for insomnia actually instructed sufferers to peer into the centre of a red poppy, so that's the very black bit where the seeds are in the middle. And obviously that is the part that does give us the opium. Monica Janssen's also offers putting a fork under your pillow or putting garlic in the shoes that you keep near your bed as a cure for insomnia. And obviously if none of this works, you could just simply hope for a visit from the Sandman. 
And obviously no post on sleep folklore would be complete without the Sandman. And when you wake up and you feel those hard crumbs of matter around your eyes, this is evidence apparently that the Sandman paid you a visit the night before and people believe that this was the remains of his sleep sand. Now no one really knows where the Sandman first came from, although there was a belief in 1821 in a character called the Dustman which reveals a very similar idea and Rowden Simpson also talk about in Lancashire the Billy Winker who closed children's eyes at bedtime ready for sleep. And then somehow you end up with these really sweet ideas on one end of the spectrum and then at the other you have E.T. Hoffman's Dare Sandman from 1816. And in his version, the Sandman was not a figure you would want to encounter because he actually threw sand at children who wouldn't go to sleep and this sand then caused their eyes to fall out which the Sandman then collected and fed to his children. Now Sigmund Freud discusses the story at length in The Uncanny and Freud being Freud sees the fear of losing your eyes as castration anxiety because it's Freud. Now I can't help wondering if the fear is actually more likely one of never being able to close your eyes again i.e. never being able to sleep again. But thankfully Hans Christian Andersen went down a much more positive route and it's his version that's far more recognisable within sleep folklore. And he wrote his Ole Lukoye, the Dustman tale in 1841 in which the Sandman actually explains his process. Now he uses his sand to get the children to sleep so he can then tell them stories which are otherwise known as dreams. So he carries two umbrellas and one of them has pictures on the inside and he spreads this one over the children who are well behaved and then they have the most beautiful dreams all night. But the other umbrella is essentially blank and he holds that over naughty children so that they sleep heavily and then they haven't dreamed at all during the night. And here the Sandman's essentially operating a little bit more like Santa Claus where he's rewarding the good children and punishing the bad ones. Although that said... The punishment is simply a withholding of dreams, so it could be worse. And essentially, he could be the Hoffman Sandman instead. So I'm, I'm kind of like, either way, yes, still ensuring that they sleep. But there we go, at least he's a nicer version. But then we're talking about trying to get to sleep. You might have a perfectly good reason for trying to keep someone awake. Or you might have a perfectly horrible reason for trying to keep someone awake. And torture is the most likely reason for that. Kathleen Davis actually explains that sleep deprivation causes a whole range of problems. But within the brain it affects the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And these handle both emotions and reasoning respectively. So extensive sleep deprivation can lead to psychosis. Now, if you wanted to prevent someone sleeping in ancient Roman Greece, you might place a figure of a bat under their pillow to do so. And this is possibly due to the bat's links with nocturnal activity. But sleep deprivation is more commonly associated with the witch trials and it was used to procure confessions from accused witches. So what the accusers would do is they would walk the witches, i.e. they would keep them walking back and forward, back and forward for hours on end so that they couldn't sleep. So obviously if they're suffering from exhaustion, stress and sleep deprivation, then they were far more likely to blindly accept any accusations that were made of them. And this is why we do have to be quite sceptical about the so-called confessions that they did actually make during the period. Incidentally, Rita Voltmer also notes that some captors actually use sleep deprivation to stop familiars from reaching the witches, which is a bit of a weird tactic because sometimes they would use the apparition of familiars as evidence against them during a trial. So it's odd that they would be trying to separate the witches from their familiars when actually that would strengthen the case. But let's be honest, if you've been kept up without sleep for long enough, you might start seeing your pet, which would be your sole source of comfort in a hellish jail cell. So what do we ultimately make of all of this sleep folklore? 
Well, the only real common thread among all of this is the idea that sleep is important. And obviously the traditions and the superstitions do vary across the world. I have obviously tried to focus on the Northern European ones here, but there are similar ones that you can find in Japan, in Africa, all sorts of places. And they all have slight differences as in like the direction that you have to sleep in and so on. But the fundamental point is the same. It's trying not to invite death by sleeping in a particular direction. It's trying to protect your soul while you're asleep. And it's also trying to both battle demons and actually cure insomnia as well. And then the withholding of sleep becomes an aspect of psychological torture used to achieve nefarious ends. So the fact that there is so much commonality between sleep folklore essentially just, in my mind, underlines how important a good night's sleep actually is. So that was this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And next week we are going to be moving on to mythological creatures because I did promise that a little while ago. And we are going to be starting off with griffins, which incidentally are my absolute favourite mythological monster. I think we're also going to have a look at unicorns and dragons and I haven't quite decided on the final one. But if you do have a particular request, it may be the chimera because I feel like that doesn't get enough enough love but please do let me know because we could end up doing the hydra or something instead but as ever let me know what you'd like to hear more about and i'll see if i can fit it in obviously i can't guarantee it and as ever if you appreciate the show and you enjoy what i'm putting out please do feel free to support the show if you can you can buy me a coffee which is just three pounds through the link in the show notes where it says like buy me a coffee or if you want to get the exclusive material And there's quite a few back episodes as well that you'll also get access to. So I think there's about 10 now. So you'll get a whole bunch of like archived content as well. And that starts at $1 a month if you just want to support the podcast. If you want to get these blog posts that these episodes are based on in PDF format, it's $2 a month. $4 a month will also get you those and the extra episode. And $8 a month will get you access to any books that I write. And I I do have one on the go at the moment you'll get access to those as well so it would be lovely if you could support it in some way because it does mean that I can keep doing this I should point out as well you are going to get a special bonus on Monday because I took part in the Foca Palooza which I will try and get that name wrong which was essentially a battle royale of folklore with like 12 podcasts involved so I'm going to put out the first part because the entire thing's like an hour and three quarters long so I'm going to put out the first part on Monday so you can look forward to that and it's just going to be folklore podcasts each putting forward a different piece of folklore or story to decide which is the best one so you can listen to that as I say on Monday. In the meantime have a fabulous weekend and I will see you soon. Cheerio! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!